0: Hello, welcome to FinTech Impact. I'm your host, Jason Pereira. Today on the show, I have Mohamed Sawah, co-founder and CEO of Manzl. Manzl is a Canadian-based Islamic banking and finance platform. I had Muhammad on my other podcast, Financial Planning for Canadian Business Owners, to go over the fundamentals of Islamic finance and how they differ from traditional Western finance. We're going to touch upon this here, but if you want to know more about that, by all means, check out the other podcast. It was very well received. But specifically today, I brought him in to talk about not just Islamic finance, but how he's using fintech as a platform for distribution of Islamic finance tools. And with that, here's my interview with Mohammed. Mohammed, thank you for joining me yet again. Thank you for having me once again, Jason. All right. So Mohammed Swa of Manzil. Tell us about Manzil.
1: So Menzel was established basically based on a problem that has been ongoing, not only personally, but of course, within the community. As you know, I, I've been an advisor in the past. I've been working at the, the large financial institutions and just running into the same complaints with respect to financial products, especially on the financing and the investment side, where nothing was available to this demographic. And so Menzo was created to really fulfill that gap of the 1.6 million Muslims that are here in Canada today so that they can not only just that that are currently financially excluding themselves, but actually get into, right, home ownership and wealth management solutions
0: um, and start to build their wealth for the very first time. As I said, we went into a deeper dive on Islamic finance uh, in my other podcast. I'm going to direct people to that in the links. And to me, this is a ridiculous situation. Ridiculous in that it is a ever-growing and burgeoning community within Western, company, within Western countries, Canada included. And to not focus as a financial institution on financial inclusion of those cultures uh, is not only a missed market opportunity, but just an injustice. And, and beyond that, like, we talked about this last time. Uh, you know, financial inclusion and access to financial services is one of the big differentiators between successful nations and, and non-successful nations. If you have a cohort of your populace that can't access these solutions, you're just holding them back with both arms tied behind their back. So, I'm going to get off my my uh, my pulpit now. So, let's talk about. So, you talked about the difficulty. Talked about the genesis. You saw the opportunity. What did you do to try to fall, to try to fix it? Absolutely. So, when
1: you think about Islamic financial solutions. Obviously, there's a religious component to the way these structures are derived and, of course, are executed in the marketplace. And, you know, we can go over the theory and in theory, everything sounds fine. But the the most important piece is actually how do you localize these structures to incorporate, right, the secular system that we have in place in Canada, which not only includes the regulatory environment, the legal environment, as well as the tax environment. So, you know, for example, if we introduced a Morabaha structure, which is a back-to-back sale type uh, trade-based financing uh, structure. So, you know, you wanted to go and, and purchase something, but you can't take money from me because the lending of money in Islam, it's not a commodity. You can't earn money off of money, right? So it's not allowed. So I, w- I, I as the financier, or the lender would have to go in Purchase that asset on your behalf and then resell it to you. Now, when you're doing this in a tax free jurisdiction, that's easy, right? Like there's no implications from the buying and selling of things at different prices. But then you get into the Canadian tax base where, okay, well, I'm going to buy it at a dollar and sell it to you, the end user, at $2. Well, now there is an implication of capital gains tax. You know, well, what about HST on this item, right? There could be implications of double taxation on that end. If we're now introducing assets like uh, homes or commercial properties, well, what about the uh, land transfer tax that's involved, right? So what we did pre-launch is is really go into an extensive R and D mode for nearly, I'd say, two and a half years, and that included law firms on Bay Street that we had to bring to the table, consulting and audit firms. Um, that we brought to the table as well as an international sharia advisory firm that understood common law right and they had extensive experience within the actual the, the UK environment where islamic finance has been established officially since 2003 and fully regulated and they have five fully fledged islamic banks and 20 financial islamic institutions so we lent we lent their experience within the common law structure to be able to make it happen within the Canadian space, alongside the fact that we needed to work within what was available to us because we knew that lobbying efforts and changing of rules and asking for exemptions or administrative relief would not be possible. And so that's how we
0: went about really putting that into place. Yeah, you you signed up for quite the marathon, my friend, because this is never something that's, it's interesting, like the little tax implications, like you talked about it, and let's be clear, no one's talking about any desire to circumvent the tax code. It is to basically recognize the fact that the tax code was designed to allow for certain things like home purchases to basically happen in a way that was not gonna be punitive uh, from a tax perspective. And if you're restricted in some way, religious or otherwise, from participating in that type of thing, and your only alternative is something outside that framework, then you don't have the same kind of equal access to that type of opportunity as someone else. So it's you know it's not surprising you know, no law can fully contemplate every permutation but it's right. something that you know needs to be addressed a little bit more readily so let's let's do the quick 101 on how does islamic finance differ from western traditional finance
1: absolutely so i always tell people that islamic finance isn't just for muslims it's for everyone and it's synonymous with structural finance trade based finance or just even ethical finance and so there are there are a few main principles or i what i like to call is the Don'ts of Islamic finance, right? So number one being uh, interest-bearing transactions, right? So because there's no value on money, money is not a commodity, you know, it can't really earn anything on, on in and of itself, right? It's it's not an asset. We're in a fiat world. So interest paid or received is not allowed. Speculation is also a don't of Islamic finance. So you can't get into, into any speculative type of investment or investment strategies we also want to remove any points of uncertainty within that and then of course there's the the ethical pieces so unfair exploitation or unrest unjust enrichment or even an you know in a being part of or having an unethical purpose right so you know many people in the islamic finance realm or people who have heard it for the first time may have heard that you know we, we don't get involved with industries that involve themselves with you know pork or alcohol or defense or weapons, um, gambling and entertainment, uh, tobacco, uh, and even pornography, right? So, you know, some of these are identified as the sin stocks. But then, of course, okay, outside of that, you can invest in anything else that you'd want to do, or you can open up a business that doesn't support those types of activities. But, you know, the the, the real piece uh, here is how do you finance them, right? How do you finance these businesses if you're not allowed to finance with them with money and then just earning money back in return, right? And so this is where we get into really easy to understand structures that I, I like to say are easy. To understand. So, you know, it could be in a ijara or a lease agreement. It could be in a musharaka, which we like to call as a partnership agreement. Or in the previous example that I just showed you or, or or talked to you about Murabaha, which is basically a cost plus agreement, right? So we're gonna you know, go into
0: these... both maharba and the and the other one. Yeah, I'm gonna butcher the name yet again. Um, Musharak. Musharak. Huh? Right. Yeah. Musharak. Yeah. Okay. So we'll go into both of those in a minute. So, but in general, yeah, there's ways, right? Like you got like it's not like it's not like the entire Islamic world didn't figure out ways to not work within the framework set out in the Quran for what was acceptable, right? Uh, it's Correct. just that they're not common to hear. So let's talk about those mechanisms, right? So we touched upon them briefly. Let's go into them a little bit more. So start with the murabaha. How does that work? I'm going to put your name murabha, the Yeah, that's
1: absolutely <laughs> fine. No problem. <laughs> so again, murabaha is a cost plus situation, right? And again, when we focus on asset-backed or asset-based transactions, right? This is the number one stipulation when it comes to entering into these transactions. So murabaha, you know, I have a phone store. You walk into my phone store, Jason. You say, "I want to buy this iPhone." I say, "Listen, Jason, it's thousand dollars cash today." You come to me and you say, "I don't have a thousand bucks." Generally speaking, what would happen is you'd probably go to the bank, enter into a third-party loan agreement with them. They would give you a thousand bucks, and they say, "Give me twelve hundred bucks back after the year." Call that twenty percent interest, right? Then you say, "Hey, Mohammed, I have your thousand bucks. Here you go. Give me the phone back. No problem." That's the conventional way of doing things. In the Islamic finance way of doing things, that bank would have to purchase the iPhone from me as the retailer. Now they say, "Hey, Jason, I own this phone. You can. I'm going to resell this back to you for twelve hundred bucks. Again, it's a twenty percent." profit this time, not interest, but they have to have ownership of that asset, right? Because there has to be a shared risk. And yes, the shared risk could be a moment of time, right? It could be a matter of minutes, but at least it uh, solves for that element. And now what you have is an agreement between you and the bank that sold you an asset that you're now going to pay off over the next 12 months. And for that convenience of paying it off over 12 months, they're charging you a 20% profit, right? This is not a play on words. This is actual structural elements that need to be in place and documentation in order for this transaction to be certified halal.
0: And because asset backed, I mean, this is no different from you know a mortgage bond, and that basically it's 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 secured by the asset itself, right? So the risk is reduced by that. Now, I mean, you're you're right. The risk exists for that moment in time where they're the sole owner, but then after that point, should the person default, the asset can be repossessed, and this is not that much of an extension or huge deal. It's a subtle difference to how, you know, we talked about this in the last podcast, Christianity got around the usury laws within the Bible, which was to originally discount bonds. Hey, I'm going to borrow 900 from you today. Technically I borrowed a thousand from you. I got to repay. It's just, you know, for the convenience of today, I basically get it now. So basically the difference there being is that there was no the only risk is the lender's risk, and of course, if it's asset-backed secure, then there is no risk. There is no ownership, so that I, I understand. I always wondered why that trick never worked in Islam, and I understand because of <laughs> that ownership aspect. Yeah, that is how you get around it. So makes makes a lot of sense.
1: So and, and there's that, a huge misconception out there about recourse on the asset. Like there is full recourse mechanisms on the as as the lender, because I come across this all the time. A lot of people think, oh well, in Islamic finance transactions. You, because you have to be fair, and you
0: don't have to be, you can't be unjust, you can't go after, I'm like, who said that? Like, in Islam- So like, is it you, unjust to repossess a house that wasn't, the mortgage wasn't paid? That's not unjust, right? Right. And, like, and even then, <laughs> and even then, if the bank sells it, you still get your net equity after all the costs Absolutely. and everything, right? So. How is that unjust? Like they're not taking your equity.
1: Yeah, I know. The unjust piece is, and we know the banks or financial institutions that that get into these types of contracts is they'll just tack on fees for the sake of tacking on fees, whether it be admin or legal. That's really the unjust piece, right? But like you have an asset that hasn't been fully paid off. You have complete recourse on that asset. Sell it (laughs) off. Make yourself whole again. And whatever is left, give it back to the client. There's nothing wrong with that
0: and every i mean just about every religion probably i'm not sure about every religion but at least all of the you know judeo christian isla muslim religions they all have rules around keeping your word Right, like yes, so absolutely. It's, it's considered, you know, recourse is not considered unjust. So, all right. So that's um, that's the first one. Let's talk about Musharakpa. Musharaka. Uh, I'm yeah. Musharaka, Musharaka, Okay. Yes. Jeez. All right. I need to spend more time. <laughs> continue. Tell us about how that works.
1: Yeah. So so Musharaka is really easy. Just think of it as a, a GPLP, right, or or two people that went into a partnership agreement on a particular asset, right. So again, let's let's use. The home financing, right? So you're coming in with your 20% down payment. I'm coming in with my 80% down payment or financing, right? So so now we have a partnership agreement where I own 80% and you own 20%. But what's in place is that you are basically making payments towards me so that I can transfer equity or part of the asset over to you with every payment that's made, right? So what we call this is a diminishing musharaka or a declining balance musharaka. So that your, like as every payment is made over time, your interest in the property or asset increases and mine decreases with every payment that's made over to me until such time that it's fully paid off. And then of course, title is fully
0: transferred over. You have complete ownership over the property and away you go. So, talk to me about okay. So, the obvious there's an obvious risk sharing there, absolutely, because we're both involved. Talk to me about the risk mitigation for Mm -hmm. the non-primary party here.
1: Absolutely. So, when it comes to risk mitigation, so again, number one, you can introduce clauses where you have the right to occupy the property. We're acting Mm -hmm. as kind of like this silent partner, and of course, you have to maintain the property in a certain way. It can't decrease in value with anything that you've done personally to, to you know you can't just smash walls and do whatever right um, and of course you're you're paying for your your increased interest over time now when it, there's full recourse right so if you if you breach the default of payment or even if you if you sublease it to somebody else or rent it out to somebody else which then damages the value of the property I'll be able to have recourse on that. You're responsible for property taxes. You're responsible for the upkeep, the maintenance, the utilities. No different than what we would have here, right? And then of course, if we were in a situation where let's say we sold the property at a loss, right? Well, I'm first payee. So I need to make my uh, principal balance owed to me whole. And then of course, whatever's left, I can go after personal if I need to be, but we all know that may not work because you're gonna claim bankruptcy. So I'm left holding the bag with whatever's left, right? But there's so many mechanisms that are built into place to ensure that from a risk perspective, over the course of the ownership of that asset, I have my rights protected as, as you know, as the financier in place.
0: And just to be clear, if I'm the person buying in, you know, over time, am I buying in at the market value, or am I buying at, at the original value, or You're buying, or some other contracted value?
1: Yeah. So what happens is, so let's say the property, the purchase price of the property is 500,000. So, you know, I've given you 400,000 of financing, which is 80%. You put in your 100,000, my financing, right? There's a profit tacked on top of that. So let's call it an implicit financing rate of whatever, three, 4%. So that's how it'll be a principal and profit payment
0: to me that usually won't change. So it's like, but again, butchering the name, but in successive payments as opposed to a single one. Exactly. Exactly. So I mean, it's a series of equity transactions in the end. Excellent. So that's the brief 101 on Islamic finance. We went into this deeper in my other podcast talking about the use of technology in terms of distribution and basically providing people with these solutions. How? You know, where was besides the fact that people needed access to these things, how are you using technology to enable them to actually get their hands on?
1: Absolutely. So we're a hundred percent digital platform, and this is really the only way that we can penetrate our community across the country, right? Without having to establish bricks and mortar retail branches or offices that the typical financial institution would do, right? So you go online to menzo.ca you basically are inundated with who we are and you know what we're here to do and what we're here to solve there's a bunch of blog articles about the differences between conventional finance and islamic finance so we're very focused on the education awareness piece and the financial literacy about that. We share with you our products and everything goes through a a single portal, right? So when you sign up on the Menzel platform, you immediately get a dashboard, which is basically just a menu of products that are available to you, whether it be home financing, whether it be our prepaid card solution or our investment program. And so you would basically then go down that product route or that product let's call it story and sign up for it. And we basically guarantee that going through our platform, you don't have to worry about the Sharia compliance. Uh, You don't have to worry about whether or not you're, you're entering into transaction that's in the gray space. Like We have taken care of that for you so that you can sleep peacefully at night,
0: knowing that your finances are in order and in accordance with your faith. So basically, at the end of the day, really, you're, you're a conduit, right? You're a conduit in a, pl- a platform. You you uh, obtain the the Islamic client who basically is looking for these solutions within the country. You basically, you then serve up everything you, you possibly can to them because, I mean, frankly, when I say serve up, the reality is you're dealing with fundamental issues, right? I mean, looking at your website, it is basically payment cards and buying a house and, <laughs> and buying cars, things that the rest of us take for granted that they're isn't friction to other than just applying for credit. So where do you see it going from here? You're already in those spaces. What else is lacking in the current ecosystem that needs to be brought to the table for people who need to borrow or, or who need to operate in a halal manner?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I, I, there's actually a plethora of solutions that are still required within the community. And number one is a deposit, uh, like checkings and savings accounts. And we can get into like why. Savings is pretty obvious on on the checking side too, right? Like there's there's a deeper purpose uh, when it comes to just not enabling interest banks bank, interest based banks to use our money for the purpose of of you know generating interest. So there's that piece.
0: Student well, loans. Well, that's curious huge, because I was going to yes. say what's the problem if the bank doesn't pay you interest? Then technically you're not offside. But I see by extension you're enabling them to get into usury, so therefore you're offside. Right. Wow, you quite quite the labyrinth you have to, you have to, you have to navigate, but continue.
1: Yeah, uh, you know, student loans or student financing is a oh, huge boy. piece, right? Like there was actually an article last year, I think, in Forbes magazine or maybe it could have been the New York Times. But the and they income
0: sharing packs or something like that?
1: So income sharing agreements, you know, would yeah. fulfill, would fulfill this, right? But they were highlighting this Muslim girl who got into like all the Ivy League schools but didn't have the financing to be able to do it. So she was actually just like saying, I, I'm not, I'm not going to get myself into $300,000 of interest-based debt due to my faith just so I can go to these schools. So, and I don't think she had any scholarships or maybe it was li- limited scholarships, but it wasn't a, a full ride. Right. So, so income sharing agreements, you know, can help this, but again, where are you sourcing the capital in order to be able to fulfill this, right? So, you know, cap funding and capital attraction into these programs is a real big concern that we're still solving for. We do have access to, let's call it retail-based capital, but at the institutional level is where you really need to get that good cost in place
0: and be able to kind of Launch this uh, at scale. Other agreement, like let's stay on education, the education yes. one for a second. I mean, two pieces here. First off, the other piece is that debt is so interwoven into the U.S. system. Perfect example is you know I applied for grad school in a couple, a couple of Ivy League institutions because my test scores were good enough. But nevertheless, my resume probably wasn't at the time for sure. But the second you apply to Harvard or Yale or anything like that, you get letters from Citibank and other places saying, "By the way, you're conditionally approved for six figures worth of debt, assuming you get in." Right. Yeah. It's like, I didn't even approach them, but just, just the submission, of the application got me pre-approved by that financial institution. Right. So wow. like the, it's just the mechanism is so intertwined that that's the norm. Now go back to what I mentioned briefly about in- about the uh, income, share. Like, maybe see. this was a couple of years ago, but several universities in the U S now have, have created programs whereby you can share some of your income, a percentage of your income. And it's a sliding scale based on how little, if you make little, you don't give us a, a large percentage, the more you make, the more you give that basically goes to the university in lieu of the tuition cost, the the exorbitant cost of education down there. And immediately that struck me as like, hey, this is possible." This legality is around contracts and everything else. But immediately there's a a, a symmetry with what you're trying to accomplish here. And is that a solution that's been used in the Islamic world before?
1: I don't know of any real life example elsewhere, but I know Uh that we've studied this as a solution and we know that this can be a solution uh, that we can bring onto our platform as long as there is access to a decent rate of capital, decent amount, and at a decent cost, and there's nothing wrong with that. And it's just it's just more fair when you think about it, <laughs> you know. Just well, I mean, absolutely. You don't want to stop somebody from getting an education, especially if it's a really good program and they can give back to society, right? You're like human capital is is what we really have here in the, in the Western world.
0: Well, and part of the message there was that it's you know it's a diversified portfolio of, of of jobs, right? So and no one really knows what there's there's definite indications that if you take whatever program whatever school. Odds are your income is going to be higher, and cor- correspondingly in other places. But the argument made was that hey, the school is actually a little bit safer. Like the school is safest by taking you know your debt, but the second best step is is essentially hey, if we just take us if we take a slice of everybody's income when they get out and, and reduce our cost here, if we diversify enough, we'll probably bring in about the same amount of money, hmm. and we'll do it while letting people live their lives and not basically crushing them under student debt.
1: Yeah, and you know what? Like the, the U.S. is there's obviously a huge debate around. Uh, you know the, the loan forgiveness on the student side and all the stuff and mm-hmm. but like i don't know if you, you, you knew this but like uh student loans like even if you were to go bankrupt personally you cannot get in away in the us, in yeah, the you, US. Can't you can't get away from the student debt that you that you have right um and actually i had a friend that went to harvard their endowment fund is, is the largest in the world and he was actually getting a loan from the endowment fund but the rules around him paying back are super egregious like basically Here's two hundred thousand. Let's call it eight to ten percent, and you cannot pay this back early, even if you wanted to. You still have to pay us whatever the twenty five years of interest on this
0: loan was. Imagine entering why? into agreement like that because you don't have a choice wow, this is why there are so many advisors down there who specialize in dealing with student debt because it is it like not only that. I mean, every program I've ever heard for for forgiveness or whatever has all kinds of complexities. So anyway, we can go on, that's that's a separate episode of the Let's go back to the course. so student student debt, clearly an area or student ena- enablement of people to go to post secondary education is, yeah. is an area that you basically identified. what else? What else is there that you want to expand it into Small business financing. Oh yeah, <laughs> big
1: time. Inventory yeah. financing, right? Anything associated with you know how many professionals like doctors and dentists that want to set up their own practice and the banks have these great programs in place, right, for for these professionals, but at the end of the day, right, they don't enter into it. They'll maybe get into uh, like they'll just share their friend's practice on a revenue basis and not actually have any ownership. All of these things restrict you from building wealth over time and giving back to society, employing, like creating jobs, right? Like there's so much restrictions when it comes to the potential GDP that could be created from this group. You're hindering it. And yeah. nobody wants to get involved. Oh, nobody wants to solve for this problem at scale.
0: Well, I'm glad people like you exist because the reality is, is, you're going to help enable that group. Because again, the why people and we've discussed this in the previous podcast. Typically, immigrants are predisposed to starting businesses, and and usually are are you know if you're bold enough to be willing to relocate your entire life, you're usually bold enough to be willing to take risk. And we're not mm-hmm. giving them the tools that are that are basically required. To create risk that benefits society, and that is that's that's tough. <laughs> that's tough. Yeah. yeah. So, all right. I have that's so resources. many
1: friends. Sorry, before that, I was just gonna say I have so many friends that have e-commerce stores or Shopify stores, right? And they all want, you know, the the ClearBank program, but they come to me and they say, "Mohammed, like, can you struct?" I'm like, "I'm happy to structure this program for you in a Sharia compliant way, if ClearBank is willing to come to the table, and we can just basically like just put like create a separate agreement." that would fulfill, right, the rights and obligations of these. And you're going to be protected. You're still going to earn your rates. We're not talking about reducing whatever money that you're going to make on the table. Like, you're still going to make your profit. But we just have to structure. it.
0: It's process and documentation. Well, That's inventory it. financing, to me, is the easiest one of all, right? Like, I mean, you know, between, between Shopify, ClearCo, uh, you know, payability god there's so many plays in this space yeah right like they're tying in to your data on oh i know amazon's gonna pay these guys in 30 days like i know that for sure but they need money for inventory now you know that you're you can again and i think you're know, going back to what you've taught me on this all they have to do is technically take ownership of the inventory for a moment in time yeah. and facilitate that and they're making the exact same money like it, it to me it's it's shocking that this isn't like, I don't think this is that hard a coding issue. I don't think this is that hard a contract (laughs) issue. No, it's not. Just turn your lens to it. Like, my God. There's even something simpler
1: than even taking ownership of the inventory. There's something called a wakala or an agency agreement. I could actually be the custodian of your funds and basically say that, give me this amount of money and I will give you this amount back because you're basically allowing me to control your money. Right. And that and like, we could create just an agency agreement that's in place where I'm the custodian of those funds. I'm going to turn it into a profit and I'm going to give you this money back plus some,
0: yeah. Oh, okay. It's uh, equal parts <laughs> equal parts inspiring and frustrating to hear this because it's just there's more than one way to swing a hammer on this. Anyway. So before we wrap up, three questions I asked everybody. First question is, if you had one wish for something to change in your company or the industry as a whole, what would it be?
1: Oh man, it would be more of an industry. I would love to establish an Islamic finance regulatory
0: framework. Interesting. Interesting. Uh, yeah. I mean, I, I could see simply being even just an offshoot of the current regulatory framework. So that would not be a threat. It's just a mad, just a... Just well, number. that's what
1: they did in the UK, right? You have the FCA. Yeah. And then from the FCA, they created a separate body that said, here's the rules around how we want Islamic finance to happen. And we're going to regulate that. But we're also going to allow banks to be able to do it. And yes, we know that you need X, Y, and Z exemptions. Like, the main exemption they made was the double lance, double stamp duty, which is basically you can't be taxed twice on the same transaction that's being conducted as part of one deal. That's it. So they abolished double stamp duty. And they say, go ahead, because Murabaha is used in 80% of Islamic finance transactions. Right? you you covered 80%
0: there. Yeah, there Basically, there's, the, there's the 80-20 rule right there. Less than 20% right? of logistical problems are basically cover 80% of the market. Well, right? Crazy. So, if that was one wish, I would love to establish that. Fantastic. Second, uh, well, I mean, and I would say fantastic from the standpoint of, quite frankly, if there was a regulatory body, then that's the body that could work with the government to solve for these problems more effectively. <sighs> anyway, second question I have for you is what's been the biggest challenge in getting the company to where it is today?
1: I think the biggest challenge has just been overcoming the preconceived notions that people bring to the table about Islamic finance because it's all wrong, actually. Like what they think needs to happen for these transactions to be working models in the marketplace is completely, I don't know who educated them. I don't know where they got their information from, it's absolutely like it's it's actually a joke, <laughs> you know, what what they think Islamic finance is and how it would work in Canada. And the best part is like we have real deals in the market and we just show them like here it is, it's it's happening. We didn't ask for any law, lo- we didn't lobby, we didn't ask for any exemptions. It's all within the rules, and you know, it's 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 working absolutely fine. In theory, it could have worked out differently, right? But when you have something in practice and and the proof is in the pudding. There really should be no denying, right, that this isn't a model that we can incorporate into Canada and that we can scale amongst this community and beyond.
0: Last question for you is what excites you? about what it is you're working on? It gets you up in the morning every day to keep on fighting the good fight, especially in your case, given it's very few people that I have to talk to where it involves changes in regulation, tax law, financial structures. <laughs> contracts. So what keeps you going? Man? Honestly, I, I think what keeps me going is the community. The community
1: themselves, every time they hear about me or they engage with me. It is a burden. Like they, they hundred percent say, "Mohammed, this is like you have the burden of the community to make this work." But that, in and of itself, that challenge excites me, right? Like I love problem solving. And we have had our ups and our downs. We've had barriers that we thought would be impossible to break through but we got through with it. And, and it's not just me, but it's it's the team that I've put around me that has been able to, to assist uh, on this. And so the community itself with their support and them basically telling me that this is their only chance or their last chance, they think, and their last hope that something like this can come to full scale is what gets me up in the morning, to be
0: honest. And unfortunately, many immigrant communities, when they come in, have to basically not just, you know, adapting one, is one thing, but there's certain things that the don't have to be adapted. That, frankly, just it hurts no one to change some rules to basically enable what's necessary. And, and frankly, yeah, that's a hard, it's a hard battle to fight. So, I commend you for it and encourage you to Thank keep going. Thank, Thank you. Thank you yet again to two fantastic podcasts in a row. Appreciate it. <laughs> Excellent. So that once again, that was Muhammad Salah of uh, Mansel. Hope you enjoyed that. And as always, if you enjoyed this podcast, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Spotify, or wherever it is you found this podcast. Until next time, take care.